Look at the person next to you and say, I declare war. Tell them, I declare war. Say it like you mean it. Now look at somebody else and say, I declare war. Say it like you mean it. There you go. I like it. I like it. Well, again, thank you guys so much. We're going to jump right in. We are kicking off this series today. Some of you walked in, you're like, man, why do they have this like desert storm look going on during worship? Now you know. It's because we're kicking off a series called I Declare War and the tagline of the series and worship is our weapon. Worship is our weapon. For the next three weeks, we're going to be digging into worship. The idea of worship and, and more specifically why we sing some of the songs that we sing and where these songs come from and what they mean. Whether it be like an ancient hymn kind of song of our faith or a more modern song like the one we sang today. The title of my message is the title of that song, Another in the Fire. Like just saying that, I'm like, ooh. Like if you grew up in church and you speak Christianese, you know exactly what that's referencing. If you, that, that's still funny. That's awesome. I've, I've said that like every service. Um, but it's true. Like you know what that's referencing. And that's what we're going to talk about today. If you have a Bible, open it up. We're going to be in Daniel chapter 3. Daniel chapter 3. Daniel chapter what? Three. Nice. Good job. I heard you guys on Facebook in the chat room at Church Online. Welcome to all you guys joining us online as well and here in the room. And as you turn to Daniel chapter 3, I just want to lay the foundation of this series and talk about this idea of warfare and worship. Because here's the deal. Like, if you've said yes to Jesus, you're a war. Right? One guy, he's like, I know it. <laughs> right? How many of you can, like, testify, like, sometimes life, it's obvious we're at war. Like, some, how many of you have ever been in a fire? You know what I mean? Like, not literally. <laughs> well, maybe. I actually... I have. I've been completely consumed in flames before. But that's more of a youth message. I'll tell that to your students. Um, but anyways. <laughs> but like the Bible uses fire often realistically but sometimes metaphorically for the trials we go through. How many of you can say you've been, you've been through a fire before, right? So we're going to be talking about today what it looks like to go through the fire, what it looks like to be under fire in this warfare we find ourselves in and how worship is one of the primary weapons. But let me just lay the groundwork. I declare war. Somebody say that like you mean it. Say, I declare war. I declare war. Wow, yeah, I'll go into battle with y'all. That was good. If you've said yes to Jesus, you're at war. The Bible teaches that we are dead spiritually when God reveals himself to us in the form of his son. Maybe it's at a church service like this. Maybe it was reading your Bible in your dorm room. Maybe somebody shared the gospel with you. But as soon as you say yes to following Jesus, to apprenticing under him, you go from spiritually dead to alive. You actually, I, I love modern day meeting people. They'll be like, are you religious? Uh, you know, people are like, no, I'm spiritual. I'm like, not unless you've said yes to Jesus. You're dead spiritually. But that doesn't go over well. That's not how I lead the conversation. But, uh, but you say yes to Jesus, you become alive spiritually. And Jesus' entire message was not say yes to me and get out of hell free card. That was not the gospel. The gospel wasn't say yes to Jesus, say yes to the gospel, be a good boy or girl, and you'll get into heaven one day. That's not the gospel he preached. He preached the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of heaven is here. The kingdom of light is here. Repent and follow me. Let's go. Suit up. Enlist. If there's a kingdom of light, what does that infer? Thank you again. This section, y'all are on point. I appreciate you. Uh, yeah, participatory. There's a kingdom of darkness. If there's a kingdom of light, there's a kingdom of darkness. In other words, as soon as you say yes to following Jesus and you join the global organism that is the church, the bride of Christ, side note, the church is not a cruise liner. It's not. 
It's not the SS good times as we all sail to heaven and we stay on the cruise ship that is central. As long as the seats are cushy enough, the message is like what we like and the volume is where we want it. That's not, some of you laughed, you're like, ha ha, right? That, that's not what the church is. C.S. Lewis says the church of Christ is not a cruise liner but more of a battleship. The SS charge at hell with everything we got with a water pistol and rescue, pistol and rescue as many souls as we can. The, the, the church is not like, ooh, do I like this or do I not? The church is, hey, I've said yes to Jesus. He, God created me. He loved me. He sacrificed for me. He sent his son to die for me on the cross. He rose from the grave in victory. And even though I am at war, the victory has already been claimed on the cross. And so when I say yes to him, I become alive in Christ. I now enlist in the army of God. I'm on the battleship and I say, God, I'm here to serve whatever you need. You need me to clean the latrine in Central? You need me to serve on the parking team? You need me to pick up trash. You need me to work in kids' ministry. Whatever you need, God, here we go. Amen. Thank you, ma'am. It's polite of you. But you are the only one, and I appreciate you. But it's truth. I'm just coming right in right off the bat. So that's why we're calling the series I Declare War. Because if you don't think you're at war, you've maybe already lost the battle. We have an enemy. So we are at war. That's just first and foremost. But here's the good news, like I just said. The victory has already been won. Jesus won it on the cross when he died for our sins. And he claimed it when he rose from the grave. And now we find ourselves in that glorious in-between time where God in his patience are, is allowing more and more people to come to know him. And it is our job to fulfill that great commission and go and just share that love with as many people as we can so that they can spend eternity with God. Whew, it's great. Best mission ever. That's literally, if you wake up one day and you're like, what am I doing with my life? That. If you've said yes to Jesus, you no longer have to pray for purpose. Your purpose is to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything God commanded you, and lo, he's with you always, even to the end of the age. So whether you're a school cafeteria lunch lady or you're a CEO of a company, you use the talents God has given you to fulfill that commission. That is our purpose. I'm preaching today. This is just fun. I'm just going to go in. I'm just going to say, no, it's okay. I'm, I just do it for myself. It's fun. But like. We declare war, but then if we are acknowledging we are at war, we have to ask the question, who is our enemy? Because if you're at war, you're at, you're at war with somebody or something. And I'll just say it right off the bat here. We have three main enemies, multiple enemies found in the Bible. Pastor Craig's got a message for you next week where I bet he's going to surprise you with one of the enemies he talks about. But as I read the Bible in the entire narrative of Scripture, there's three enemies that kind of stand out to me. That we fight. We never fight people. A person is never your enemy. Now, people can hurt you. People can slander you. People can cause pain. But the Bible says we do not wage war against flesh and blood. In other words, a person is never your enemy. Look at the person next to me and say, you're not my enemy. Tell them. I don't care what argument you got in on the way to church. Tell them. <laughs> right? You're not my enemy. They're not your enemy. The sin in them is your enemy. Does that make sense? So we do not wage war against flesh and blood, but the Bible teaches us through the Apostle Paul in the New Testament, we don't wage war against people, but rather against spiritual things. So what are the spiritual things that we find ourselves at war against? Well, the first one is simple. It's the devil. <laughs> I'll just go good old preacher on you, the devil, right? Now, we don't talk about the devil a lot because he doesn't deserve a lot of our attention. God is bigger. Jesus conquered. Sorry, devil. You got nothing, right? But the devil is real and he is a liar, right? 
The devil is real. If you don't know the story of the devil, God created some amazing angelic beings. One of them got cocky. He was like, I can do God better than God. He tried. God was like, that will never work out. He banished him and a third of the angelic beings. And their entire mission in this battle that they've already lost is to take down as many souls with them. And so the Bible calls the devil the prince of the air. He's like the prince of this world. He's running things here, left to his own vices outside of the bride of Christ. So there is a devil and his minions that, that we come up against. The Bible says that the devil is the father of all lies. In other words, he speaks his native tongue, Lyonese. He, he can't help, thank you, thank you for laughing at church jokes. I appreciate you, that was a really bad one. But, but he, he only speaks in lies. But the cool part about that is once you can like decode the enemy's code, you know what it really means. So if you've ever had those whispers from the enemy in your ear and your subconscious, oh, you're not good enough, you're not good enough. Well, if he only speaks in lies, what does that mean? You're more than enough. You're more than, oh, you're not worthy of their love. You're not worthy of God. What does that actually mean? You are more worthy than you could ever imagine. You are more worthy. God, God has sent his son. That's how much he loves you. That's how worthy of you. you. You see how quickly if you realize, oh, he only speaks in lies, then the opposite of what I'm hearing from the enemy must be God's truth. Woo! So once we recognize, oh, that's an enemy. We can fight against him, especially when we can break the code. But the devil isn't just a liar. His entire manifesto was to become God. In other words, the devil's ploys in this battle, in this warfare, we wage against the kingdom of darkness. He doesn't want us to worship the opposite of God. He wants to counterfeit God. And this is where our second enemy comes in. First enemy, the devil. The second enemy scripture teaches about is the ways of this world, the patterns of the world. That's why the Bible says we must be renewed by the transforming of our mind. You know when you read the Bible, you're actually a nonconformist because the majority of people in the world conform to the patterns of the world. You're actually revolutionary, freeing your mind, more spiritual, intellectually enlightened than you could ever imagine when you dig into God's word. You're rebelling against the masses. It's funny, I remember back in high school, everybody was like punk or ska. I know those aren't like real big now. I mean, I guess they are. Punk's kind of coming back, they're gonna come back. But like, those are like, oh, I'm a rebel. I'm like, you're not a rebel, you're doing what everybody else is doing. Everybody's punk and ska right now. You're a conformist, right? We all have our ways of wanting to rebel. But, but one of the ways the enemy takes us down is through the patterns of this world by counterfeiting things. So, so here's what I mean by that. Counterfeiting things. So we'd be like, success, right? I, I want success in my life. And success is a good thing. Success is a great thing. But the problem is, is a good thing and a great thing isn't necessarily a God thing. And so sometimes the enemy will all of a sudden make our lives revolve around success, which is a good thing, but it's not God. And all of a sudden success becomes our God, and he has won. He has counterfeited what you direct your life towards. You, you, you follow me on this? Here's another one. God is love. Amen? God is love. He is the source of all love. What does our culture say? Love is love. Our culture doesn't say God is love. Our culture says love is love. So as long as, it's lo as long as you love, do whatever is love for you because love is love and we all just want to love. Love is great. But love in itself is not God. God is love. So all of a sudden if we start defining love by what feels good to us, the enemy has now counterfeited God which is love and said, no, 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 all you need is love, not God. Just worry about love. See that sly counterfeit in culture? So like, again, 
We are at war. Our three enemies then are the devil, the culture, and then the third one is way closer to home than we can imagine. It's our flesh. The Bible talks about over and over and over again, your flesh, your flesh, your flesh. Our flesh is sinful by nature. I love it when people are like, we're all good people. No, we're not. <laughs> and we know that, right? It's like when babies are born, like babies are so pure and innocent. No, they're not. <laughs> and parents know that, right? Because you didn't have to sit your child down when they started talking and go, okay, here's what it means to not tell the truth. Practice on me, lie to me. You didn't have to teach your kid to lie. No one had to teach us to lie. We just figure that out because we're sinful in our nature. No one had to teach your kid how to punch their brother and sister when they're angry. We just do that. Parents, right? Amen? It's just something we do. Why? Because we're sinful in nature. Our flesh naturally pulls us away from the kingdom of light, from the kingdom of heaven. So left to our own vices, the patterns of the world and our flesh will follow suit with the devil and lead away from the kingdom of light towards the kingdom of darkness. But when we say yes to Jesus, we become new creations. We are born again under the banner of the kingdom of God, enlisted into his army, and we declare war against those enemies. And one of the main weapons of our warfare is worship. Now, the Bible talks a lot about spiritual warfare. It talks a lot about it. Um, and the New Testament talks about, like, put on the full armor of God. We've talked about that here today. There are ways we can equip and prepare ourselves for the spiritual fight we find ourselves in every moment, minute of every day. So you put on the armor of God. The Bible talks about how the word of God is like a sword. Woo! Ha! Sword. Like, we don't use swords much anymore in warfare. But how cool is that? I just love that picture. It says it's a double-edged sword. Oh, that's a whole other sermon. But one of the main weapons, we have many, but one of the main weapons God gives us is worship. Is worship. And so I just want to talk about what worship is, and then we're going to look how these three amazing guys who were literally thrown into a fire came up against all three of these enemies around the premise of the warfare of worship. But it, we have to start by asking the question, what is worship, right? Because when I say worship, a lot of you pictured a bunch of old people in purple robes singing. You know what I mean? We're like, that's worship. Or you, like the movie Sister Act 2, you're like, that's worship, right? Or, you know, like, that's just one of my favorite movies, right? Uh, <laughs> but like worship, right? Like that's worship. I, I want to start by defining worship. Webster's Dictionary says worship is the feeling or expression of reference and adoration for a deity. The feeling or expression of reverence and adoration for a God or a deity. A simpler way to say that is worship is when we give our attention, affection, and adoration towards something or someone. Right? And here's, I'm just going to let the cat out of the bag. You don't have a choice if you worship. You and I, like that old Christian song, anybody remembers it? You and I remain to worship. Right? Anybody remember that song? I don't know why that's my singing voice, but it is. I'm kidding. Y'all remember that song? It's true. It's theologically correct. In your DNA, your OS, your operating system was designed to worship. So the question is, isn't, are you worshiping? The question is, what are you worshiping? What is getting the majority of your attention, affection, and adoration? That is what you worship because worship is not just when we sing or play instruments. If I were to define worship, ultimately, I would say worship is a lifestyle. Right? 
Worship, how do we know that? Romans chapter 12, verse 1. I say it like almost every other message, one of my life verses. Memorize it in the King James, so forgive me for the these and thous. But it says, Romans chapter 12, verse 1. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. For this, when you present your bodies as a sacrifice, when you present your life as a sacrifice, for this is your spiritual act of worship. So in other words, tomorrow night, your spouse is exhausted. You're exhausted. You look at your spouse and then you look at the pile of dishes and you look back at your spouse and it's not a tick for tat. It's not like, okay, I'll do this so they do this for me later. It's not a guilt trip. It's, you know what, God served me so much and I want to show the love he has for me to my spouse. So I'm going to serve them because of how God loves me. I'm going to do these dishes. That is worship. Some of you ladies are like, I'm a worship leader. <laughs> That laundry, oh, lead that worship, right? Like, no, no, the way you serve your family. God says, that, that's worship. You're at the workplace on Wednesday and the project isn't quite done and 5 o'clock hits and you look at your team and you say, no, you guys go on home. I'll take care of it. I'll put in the extra hours. I'll go the extra mile because God goes the extra mile for me. I don't need anything from you. I just want to love on you because I have a great God. That's worship. That's some good Worship. I think sometimes those type things sound way better to our king in heaven. Worship is a lifestyle. So why do we worship? Like, why do we do it? Well, we do it first and foremost, like Hannah said, because God is worthy. Can I get an amen? Like, I, let me just say this. God could kill me right now. I could just drop over and die. Nothing good could happen to me for the rest of my life. And he is worthy of all my worship, energy, effort, attention, adoration, and affection forever. Because he's already done more than he ever needed to do by creating me, by sending me. Do y'all get that? He's just worthy. If there really is a being that created all things and loves us and serves us and sacrifices for us and has a plan and a purpose for us, who are we to look back at him and be like, nah, bro, I'm good. We worship first and foremost because he is worthy. Now here's one of the main, I didn't get to say this in the first service, here's one of the main differentials between our religion and most other religions in the world. Every other religion is made up by man, first off we know that, and every god we've ever made up, be it Marduk, Zeus, Jupiter, Muhammad, Allah, every other god we've made up requires something of us in worship, and if they're pleased or satisfied, we don't die. Or we get, it's a, we just pour out and give, and it, that's one way we let you know that we believe in you. We serve the only God not made up by man, and we know he's real because every God man makes up is self-serving just like man. But God, the real God, isn't self-serving, he serves us. And then when we point our attention, affection, and adoration towards him, and we worship him, it's actually reciprocal. We worship him and he pours his love, his peace, his joy, his anointing, his power onto us. It's the best deal ever. It's like you're worthy and, and that's all that matters. And he's like, I know, but watch, you worship me because I'm worthy and I will pour my love into you. Oh, God is so good, right? So worship is a lifestyle. Worship is when we point our attention, affection, and adoration towards something or someone. And so then it begs the question, why do we sing? Why is worship so closely associated with singing? Well, first off, we sing because if you believe in God and his word, the Bible commands us to. And all throughout Psalms, David's like, sing a new song. And we're like, I don't know any songs. And then David's like, write a new song for the Lord. 
we're just like, ah, right? But David's like, sing a song, sing the song to the Lord, sing to the Lord, sing. So some of us men in here were like, oh, I'm not a good singer. Don't matter. Your warrior king David commanded us. And some of y'all are like, well, that's Old Testament. What about the New Covenant? Paul says twice in Ephesians and Colossians, he says, when you gather together, sing hymns to one another, sing spiritual songs to one another, lift each other up, sing. Well, first we sing because we're commanded. So that's enough for me. My commander says something, amen, let's go, right? And I am not a good singer, as y'all just heard a second ago. But we sing because we're commanded. But you know, like we sing because there's a synergy and an energy in it, actually. Y'all know that, right? Okay, let me, let me talk to the men. Um, well, just to everybody. Like some of you are sitting out here and you're like, but I'm not a singer. That's not how I primarily worship. Again, according to scripture, it doesn't matter. <laughs> Y'all love me, don't you? Like he's so blunt. Um, but when you go to a birthday party and they light those candles, what do you do? Happy birthday to you. Right? I can't sing. That's the way it comes out. Happy birthday. I mean, I get into it, right? Try and get some vibrato. Right? Why do we sing at a birthday even though we can't sing? Because it's not about us. It's about the birthday boy or girl. We love them, so we sing. Right? It's not worship. That's just nice. That's, it's because there's energy, there's synergy, there's something special about when we sing. And some of us big old men in here are like, yeah, but I'm not comfortable with it. That's a lie. Sorry, I just almost spit on you. Amen. No COVID. Sorry. Uh, I just, I, I laugh because I think back like, <laughs> I remember, I mean, I grew up a college football fan and all that stuff. We can get into that. But like for more European influence, I remember the first time my brother and I were backpacking around uh, Europe and we found ourselves in Barcelona and we found out there was a, a, a semifinals game in the Champions League between Barca and AC Milan. And I had never been to like a soccer game, like a legit one. And I was like, me and my brother got some nosebleed seats. We ended up getting tickets. And I was like, let's go see if this environment compares to college football. And honestly, eh, uh, they really need tailgating. I think if soccer had tailgating, whew, um, but um, I mean cornhole. I wasn't endorsing anything negative. Come on. Um, but anyway, so like we get, and we're like in the nosebleed section. And right like a section over from us, there's this big old hairy European Spanish guy. And he just starts what many of us have heard, he goes, ole, 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 ole. And within two minutes, 100,000 people, most of which middle-aged men that cannot sing, were all going, ole, 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 ole. Right, come on, do it with me. I'm just kidding, I know y'all won't. But like, and you should have felt the atmosphere in there. Like without Jesus, without the Holy Spirit, without the anointing, oh, I felt like, you know, it's like when Queen used to fill up U2 Arena and you'd hear, right? All of a sudden this one guy in a, you know, tank top, we would have all charged anywhere. It's like, we were like, yeah, right? Because there's power. Now you take that synergy and energy and then you anoint it with God's presence. It's different. Oh, so it's commanded. It's because there's power, there's synergy and energy in it. So, so we are at war against the devil, the ways and patterns of this world, and our flesh. And one of the main weapons God has given us is this act of worship, positioning our lives to point our attention, affection, and adoration, not towards something or someone, but rather God himself. And then he has given us like this extra oomph when we gather together and we say, it's not about me, it's not about my preference, it's not about how I sound, it's about that he's worthy. 
and we sing out with everything in it. And God does something special in that atmosphere in the spiritual realm. He just does. And we can all attest to it. That is why we worship. That is what worship is. And so in Daniel chapter 3, we see an incredible example of three men that come up against the ways of this world under the banner of worship and warfare. If you're not familiar with the book of Daniel, basically quick history lesson, you had the Babylonian Empire, one of the largest, large and in charge, gruesome empires that ever existed on the planet Earth. Their king was Nebuchadnezzar. This is not a Bible story, this is legit human history. Nebuchadnezzar ruled the Babylonian Empire and he was smart. When they would conquer a people group, they wouldn't just kill them off and they wouldn't just say you're ours now and leave. They would take the best and brightest of that people group and they would make them refugees back in Babylon. They would take them back to Babylon with them. And they did this for two reasons. One, because the best and brightest then wouldn't be there to raise up and rebel. Two, because then their local economy in Babylon only got stronger because you brought the best tradesmen, the smartest scientists. And so Babylon got stronger and stronger. Genius conquering tactic. And when Nebuchadnezzar conquered Babylon or conquered Israel, he did exactly that. He took some of the best and brightest from Israel. One of them's name was Daniel, that was his Hebrew name. And then his three buddies' name were Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Those were their Babylonian names they were given. I call them Shaq, Shaq, and Ben. Shad, Shaq, and Ben, yeah. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego found themselves at a crossroads. In Daniel chapter three, King Nebuchadnezzar, sitting on his throne, has this kind of like chief magistrates and religious leaders around him. And they're like, yo, king, you're awesome. And he's like, I am. And they're like, you should build a giant golden statue and make people worship it. And he's like, that's what's up. That's a great idea. That's word for word what it says. In Dan I'm kidding. That's my translation. But that's what's going on. He's like, okay, I'm going to build a giant golden statue, a golden idol. And then they're like, here's what you do, king. We're going to play some music because there's power in music. And we're going to make people sing because there's power in singing. So when we play this music, the people must sing and the people must bow down. Because I don't know if you know this, worship just isn't just what we say, it's in what we do. Some of you are like, I don't need to raise my hands in worship. Okay. You're like, I'm fully surrendered in my heart. I'm comfortable. You look it, right? It's a sign of surrender. It's a sign of receiving. It's a sign of submission. Outwardly express what God is doing in your heart, and you'll be surprised what it does in the synergy of your anatomy. And so he says, okay, this sounds great. I'm all about me and my glory. Builds a statue, and then they fire up the harp and the, the cymbals and the drums and all that stuff. Side note, I love that drums are like one of the most biblical instruments. Isn't that awesome? Like when they brought drums in church, people were like, no, you can't have drums. I'm like, have you read the Bible? It's like all throughout the Bible. The one instrument that is all throughout the Bible we had a problem with in church for a while. That's funny. Anyways, soapbox. And so, so they do it. And everybody bows. Cultural worship. See the ways of the world? Guy's flesh, pride, everybody should worship me. He makes a mandate, government mandate. Everybody must worship this. And then the ways of the world, the patterns with the whispers of the enemy, all three enemies at work there, bam, it happens. But then the magistrates roll up to King Nebuchadnezzar and they whisper in his ear and they're like, yo, those three Israeli boys, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they didn't bow. And that's where we pick up in Daniel chapter 3 and verse 13. And it reads, then King Nebuchadnezzar, then Nebuchadnezzar in furious rage commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shad, Shach, and Ben, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? 
Now, if you are ready when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music to fall down and worship the image that I have made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Right here in Daniel chapter 3, in the Empire of Babylon, we have one of the first examples of the privatization of faith. Catch what Nebuchadnezzar first off said. He said, look, 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 you can worship your little Israeli God. You just better do what culture says you are supposed to do outside of your home. That's like today, it's like, oh yeah, you can worship your Jesus God. But when it comes to your workplace or social media, you better fall in line. Privatization of faith. It's okay in private, just not in public. And did you see what it said there at the beginning? It said Nebuchadnezzar was outraged. He was in a furious rage. Guys, how many of us can admit we live in the age of outrage? Everybody is angry about something, it seems like. Ah! Right? Can't believe they said this. Can't believe they did that. Did you read their tweet from 23 years ago? See, many of us aren't facing like a fiery pit today. But there are areas of our lives where people may be looking at us and saying, hey, you can't say that here, or you can't do that here. And if you say or do something against culture, we won't throw you in a fiery furnace, but we sure will cancel you. It's kind of, it's like we live in a digital Babylon and the fiery furnace is cancel culture. Now this isn't a message on cancel culture, but it is funny how when you try and live out your faith publicly, how quickly some groups can come against you. And here in the age of outrage, which has been around since Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar's like, no, you got to do it my way. You got to do what the culture says. For the culture, hashtag, right? And check out their response. Verse 16, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able Our God is able, he is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But even if he doesn't, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Did you catch their tone? Christ followers today, we, we could take some notes from the class they're putting on here. You notice they weren't protesting the government? No, that's not the way it's supposed to be. No, 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 no. They were just quietly obeying and submitting to God. And then they were pulled into the public square. And what did they say? King said, bow and worship my God or I will kill you. And they didn't go, hell no, we won't go. No, we are only for heaven, no. He said, O king, O Nebuchadnezzar, O king. You hear how respectful they were? You hear their tone? Guys, that's convicting in an age of outrage where we could look at people that we would deem our enemies and be like, why do they act like that? But can we just be honest? Like sometimes it's embarrassing to be a Christian. And if you're in here today and you're not a Christ follower, I'm sorry we represent Jesus like that sometimes. I'm just sorry. It's not a good representation of him. As Christ followers, we're called, called to be kind, 
Call to be open to reason at all times. Call to be respectful. Wow. And I love that these guys point us to what that looks like. Oh, King. Hey, we hear you. With all due respect, we can't do that. We can't worship anything that replaces God. We can't worship anything but the one true God. I love what they said there. Our God is able. Somebody say he's able. Somebody say it like you mean it. Say he's able. I don't know what you're dealing with today. But never question God's ability to interject himself into that environment, into that situation. Say our God is able. But even if he doesn't, we won't bow. And the narrative continues. It said, then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished. Oh, sorry, I skipped down. Then King Nebuchadnezzar, verse 19, was filled with fury. And the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And he ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it usually was heated. And he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to cast them into the burning fiery furnace. Then these men bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and their garments, and they were thrown into the burning fire furnace. Because the king's order was urgent and the furnace overheated, the flame of the fire killed those men who took Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego down there. And these three men, Shadrach and Ben, fell bound into the fiery furnace. So you catch what happens. Nebuchadnezzar was like, no, you must follow the ways of the world. You must bow down to this idol. And since you won't, canceled. You are fired. You are thrown into the furnace. And many of us today, we are not facing a real flames. But have you no mind, day after day, week after week, we all probably find ourselves where there is the ways of this world, what the culture tells us is right, and then what God tells us. And we find ourselves at the same crossroad. Anybody that's like in a dating relationship in here, and that significant other says, if you really love me, you'll sleep with me. That's what the world says. The world and the culture says, yeah, if you love someone, you give your body to them. If you love someone, you sleep with them. But at that same crossroads, you can go with the ways of the world and bow to that, like we were singing earlier, that we won't. Or you can stand up. You can look them in the eye and say, hey, I, I actually do love you. And the source of love is God. And God tells us that he wants us to have amazing sex in the context of marriage. And since I love you, I want what's best for you and I want what's best for me, so no. I thought I'd get one amen on that, right? Right? I mean, like, by the way, if you're a guy, that's hot. Like, if a girl ever said that to me, I'm like, wow. <laughs> Hopefully you wouldn't be pressuring her to have sex, but wow. <laughs> like, I'm like, well, you're amazing. <laughs> or vice versa, you know. There's some of you maybe in the workplace. Your boss is like, hey, you know, if we leave that off the books, we don't get taxed for it. So maybe just, you know, it kind of gives you that, you know what we all do. Crossroads. Do what everybody else does, worship the God of money, climb the corporate ladder, even if it means making some questionable decisions, or face being fired, the fire. Hey boss, I hear you, I understand what you expect of me, but I can't do that, because I believe in doing what's right with integrity. So uh, if you gotta let me go, you gotta let me go, but uh, I can't do that. Standing up, see it? This plays itself out today. That's what worship, I will not worship the God of success. I will not worship the God of sex and lust and love. I will not, I will only worship the one true God who wants real success for me, who wants real love for me, who wants real intimacy. Woo. And then it gets so good. It said they were thrown into the fire. 
Verse 24, then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, did we not cast three men bound into the fire? And they answered and said to the king, true, O king. And he answered and said, but I see four men. There's another in the fire. But I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Or can I take it a step further? The son of God. This really happened. It's a historical account. It's amazing. Babylon was changed because of it. It's in history books, not just the Bible. And it says, he was like, ah, verse 26, then Nebuchadnezzar came to the door of the fiery furnace. He declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God. Woo, his tone changed. You catch that? Servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire, and the satraps and the prefects and the governors and the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not had any power over the bodies of those men. The hair of their heads was not singed, their cloaks were not harmed, and no smell of fire had come upon them. I wanted to know who had that job. What satrap was like, they don't even smell like smoke, right? <laughs> They're like, ah, you can't even smell it on them. And Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own. Nebuchadnezzar got saved. He's preaching. He's like, ah! Therefore, I decree any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb and their houses laid in ruins. Uh, he's like barely saved. He still wants to kill people. Yeah, we all have friends that are like barely saved, like they're learning. But he's still, he's not quite there yet. For there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. Verse 30, then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. It's a true story. About three guys who found themselves in, in a battle. In a spiritual warfare. And they didn't fight with their fists. They fought with their obedience. We will not worship what the world and the culture and our flesh and the devil wants us to. All they had to do was this, and they would have lived. Play the music, just do this once. But instead they said, no, we don't bow to anything other than God. That's the only person worthy of our worship. And there's some incredible nuances in this story, guys. What I love, is it says the uh, King Nebuchadnezzar, he ran to the edge and he's like, yo, did we not throw, throw three bound men into the fire? Weren't they tied up? And his people were like, yeah. And he's like, I see four. In other words, there's another in the fire. The hottest time of your life at the biggest trial of your life, if you've said yes to Jesus, you are not alone. You are not alone. He says, go into all the nations teaching them everything I have commanded you, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And lo, I am with you always. Isaiah chapter 41, he says, do not fear for I am with you. If you've said yes to Jesus, you never have to be alone, even in the fire. He says, but then I love this. He says, but why are there four unbound men walking around? You notice the very thing that was meant to kill them is what set them free. They were bound in the fire and the only thing the fire burned was the ropes. You see, some of us may be avoiding a fire, avoiding a conflict, avoiding a trial where God is telling us, make a stand, stand up for me. And we're going, oh, 
but they won't like me or I'll get fired. Or, uh, and we're avoiding this fire. And it could be that that trial is the exact thing that God wants to use to set you free. It was the fire that burned the ropes. And then it says they came out and they didn't even smell like smoke. They were in a fire. And not only were their clothes not burned, their hair was not singed, but I love that detail. It didn't even, there was no evidence that they had been through the fire. You know what that tells us? You can go through the breakup and not get bitter. You know what that tells us? You can go through poverty and not have a poverty mindset. You, you know what that tells us? In time and space after life, you can go through abuse and not be the victim. Like, that's a big deal. Because so many of us have gone through the fire in life. We've gone through trials. And yes, God may have brought us out on the other side. But we're still carrying the smoke and fire. Every conversation we have, we're like, did you know I was in a fire? You smell the smoke? See, it's all over me, right? And it becomes just this huge part. And everybody's like, gosh, they're so bitter. Or they're so jaded. Or they're so this, this, that, and the other. God allows us to go through things. And if we will follow and trust in him, we can come on the other side and not even smell like smoke. That's why when the nation of Israel crossed over the Red Sea and crossed over the Jordan River, it was very intentional to say that they crossed on dry ground. Because when they came out on the other side, there was no mud from the previous season. They aren't carrying any of that garbage into the promised land. We can be the same. When you trust that there is another with you, you can go through it and not even smell like it. And this song that we sing, is the guy that wrote it, is a worship leader at Hillsong, New York. And it said, he came to uh, Joel Houston and he said, uh, hey, I wanna write a song. He was like, all right, it's called Another in the Fire. And Joel was like, done, yes. I just love that. And he goes, what's it sound like? And he goes, that's all I have. That's literally all he had. So one night in New York after service, they just started singing that line. This is another in the fire. Oh, oh. I told you I can't sing, but there is another in the fire. And he said, like, God just did a work. That's all they sang with those words. And he said five minutes, 10 minutes, 20 minutes. They just kept singing that. And people needed to know that whatever fire you're going through, you're not alone. There's someone there with you. There's someone in the fire with you. And so, church family, can we just start off this three-week series by proclaiming that truth together one more time? But this time, let's sing it like we actually believe it. Maybe some of us need it, or maybe the person next to you needs to hear it. That whatever they're going through, whatever fiery trial you find yourself in, if you will stand with God, He is with you. You are not alone. You will see victory on the other side. So church family, can we stand together right now? And let's just sing this out as a church family. And let's see what God does in this atmosphere just for the next few moments as we trust in Him and worship Him. There is another in the fire.
that you are not alone. You need to claim that truth. this heightened moment, I want to highlight one part of this verse, one part of this scripture. Stay in this moment with me, but there was something them boys said that was a game changer. They look at Nebuchadnezzar and said, our God is able. Somebody say he's able. I don't know what you need in your life right now, but just claim it. Say he's able. That's not a lie. That's truth. He is able. But then they look at Nebuchadnezzar and say, our God is able. But even if he doesn't, we will not bow to your idol. We will not go with the ways of the world. But even if, I wonder who in here could say, we have some even if faith. Even if he doesn't save the marriage, you'll praise him anyway. Even if you don't get the promotion and the money you need and you're still bankrupt, you'll praise him anyway. Even if the diagnosis stays the same and he doesn't heal them, You'll praise him anyway. Central, I wonder who in here today could say, I have an even if faith. Whether I get what I want and I desire or not, even if he doesn't, I'll praise him. Can y'all sing that with us? Sing even if he doesn't.
more time. Give God a shot of praise in this place one more time. We're so grateful there's another in the fire. 